sidebar with author and libertarian Tom Woods. This, you know this case is being televised, right? I, I am aware that there are cameras. And so this gets you your 15 minutes of fame. Objection, it? Your Honor. Argumentative. <gasps> um, so I stand to gain nothing from this. I'm actually putting myself at risk kind of in the target of TMZ, a very litigious uh, organization. And I'm not seeking any 15 minutes here. Though you may, you're welcome to speculate. I could say the same thing by taking Amber Heard as a client. Oh, shit. A little argumentative, don't you think? Oh, hardly. <laughs> I find that to be purely logical. Thank now, you. are you aware that Mr. Depp's attorneys were I'm well dead. aware of the TRO that was going to I'm be dead. I'm not presented? Sure. Uh, good evening, people. In, in as much as you may not have wanted to see anything about the Johnny Depp trial, it was either that or uh, Justin Trudeau. So... I figured we'd intro with, it's humorous, it's funny, and set aside whatever it has to do with the Johnny Depp trial, which people think are as a distraction and yada, yada, yada. I say you can learn things from this, and we've learned something very interesting right there. You know, there's the old expression, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. Uh, ask stupid questions, you might get smart answers. And it highlights the, like, you're not going to be smarter than everybody on earth. And if you want to play these types of games with people who are quick-witted and think on their feet, you go after someone's intentions for no better reason than to try to impugn their intentions, they can come back and go after yours. It was a very, very classic, uh, stupid question. It, th there was no lead up to it. It was just defense is running low on time, but it was a stupid, cheap attack on intention. 15 minutes of fame? <sighs> And he flipped it right back on her and embarrassed her. And then she, she says to him, a little argumentative. You just accused him of that. So if he's argument, ask stupid questions and occasionally you'll get a smart Alec answer as Elaine did there. Now, uh, standard intro just so that, you know, as people trickle in, we've got Tom Woods on tonight. And whenever I hear the word libertarian, I think it was Kurt Mueller from Uncivil Law it was someone who, who sensitized me to the fact that there's big L libertarian or there's small L libertarian. And then there's like part of the libertarian group or, you know, party. And one is, one is a, a very, you know, sound philosophical view of the world and government's role in it. And the other I was, I've been told is quite um, interesting and eclectic. So I haven't been able to forget that ever since I was familiarized with the the Libertarian Party or the Libertarian Annual Convention, which we, we might touch on. But we have Tom Woods on tonight, uh, a, a well-known libertarian, author, host of the Tom Woods Show, well over 2,000 episodes. I'm trying to think of, I was doing my homework today, watching some of the um, older episodes and interviews of Tom Woods. Uh, I mean, if anybody listens to Tom Woods and doesn't think he's incredibly intelligent and makes perfect sense pretty much on everything that I've heard thus far, I dare say you're an anti-libertarian. Um, he's got a great radio voice and uh, speaks some good sense. So we've got Tom tonight. Uh, I'm going to bring him in. Now, I said we'd go I'd do an intro just to let people come in for like three or four minutes. Oh, yes. Thank you, uh, Nimitz, for reminding me. I got sat down by my boss yesterday and, I, and told I have less than a month to get the jab a la corporate. Would you ask Barnes where I can find legal counsel in M.A.? No step on snake is M.A. Massachusetts. 
Nimitz, thank you for reminding me. Super chats, people. Uh, YouTube takes 30% to super chats. If you don't like that, we are simultaneously streaming on Rumble. Let me just make sure that we're smooth on Rumble. Rumble has the super chat equivalent called Rumble Rant. Are we live on Rumble? We should be. Uh, they take 20%. Uh, so better for the better for the creator, better for the platform to support a platform that supports free speech. Yada yada yada. No medical advice, no legal advice, no election fortification advice. Although I suspect we're going to be dabbing our toes into discussing policy surrounding COVID, government, the role of government in our lives. And um, Tom Woods is who made me a libertarian eleven years ago. C. Warren. Well, without further ado, ado, geez, Louise. Without further ado. Let's bring in the man of the hour, Tom Woods. Tom, how goes the battle, sir? I'm really glad to be here. Thanks a lot. <laughs> well, okay. So, so I like to do a little research on every guest, you know, try to find some scandals, try to find some, you have a pretty clean, um, you have a pretty clean record from what I was able to see. No, no outrageous scandals, no nothing, but uh, that I know of, maybe we'll get into them. But for those who don't know who you are, we do the standard elevator pitch. We get into how you got to be who you are and then some substantive, substantive issues for the evening, but elevator pitches to who you are. All right. I'll give you the 60 second version. Um, yes, I'm a libertarian. I wasn't always one, but I always knew at least from my college years that I knew I wasn't a Marxist. I knew I wasn't a progressive. When I got to uh, the Harvard campus from the little traditional New England town I lived in, it was so scandalous to me that there were literal communist newspapers for sale, that I just decided whatever these people are, I want to be the exact opposite. And eventually, after some twists and turns, I wound up in the libertarian world where I have written a bunch of books, a couple of best-selling books. I have um, uh, several membership sites where I, for example, I teach history to people who feel like maybe they didn't get the whole story when they were in high school. I have a PhD from Columbia University, so I do that too. You like what I have to say about politics? Maybe you like what I have to say about the past. And since 2013, I have hosted The Tom Woods Show, which is now up to over 2,100 episodes, which is either a really amazing milestone or a sign of some deranged, I don't know, some mental defect that someone would devote himself to something like that for so long. And what my wife says it could be it could be borderline addiction if or, you know what we do two thousand episodes is a lot. But I was watching one of the one of your interviews where you say you, you know you do it five days a week it adds up and it adds up quickly. Yeah. Um, so you said you're from New England. Yeah. Born and raised. Born and raised Massachusetts, and you know I, there have been times when I've wanted to move back to Massachusetts. Now this is pre-COVID. Now I wouldn't trust Massachusetts, but pre-COVID, I've thought about moving back there. And the trouble is I love my libertarian people so much. I love them dearly. They're wonderful, wonderful people. But some of them, some of them can't shut off ever. So they go to the movies and they have to ask themselves, is this a libertarian movie? I just want to enjoy the movie. You know, so likewise, I say, I'm thinking about moving back to Massachusetts. You can't possibly consider that. The, the regime is terrible. But you know what? I have loved ones and friends there and I'm familiar with the place and it, it brings me joy. If I can't go somewhere that brings me joy because it doesn't make me a pure libertarian, then I guess I don't care about being a pure libertarian. Uh, so you're born and raised. How many kids? What your parents do? How many generations American are you? All right. Let's see. I, I personally have five daughters, but I am myself an only, am an only child. My parents, uh, my father's deceased, um, but he was a... Um, he was a blue collar worker. He was a, he was a forklift operator for 15 years. And he did not finish high school until he got his GED in his, in his forties. And he was a great inspiration to me because he went to show 
how possible it is to be an autodidact. He, he was entirely self-taught because he was so self-conscious because he didn't have that piece of paper. So he would read and learn and study about everything under the sun. And sure, if you talk to him, he would make grammatical mistakes, but he knew stuff. He read and learned. So I, I deeply respected that. And he helped to form the way I look at the world. And then my mom was also trying to hold things together in a middle-class household by being a, a waitress for a while, and then in real estate, stuff like that. And the two of them put together a pretty good household for, for Little Woods here, who went on to, to go from a household where neither parent had gone to college. And then I went off to be uh, educated by the Ivy League, for better or worse. Now, uh, how, were your parents apolitical? Were they politically engaged? Uh, uh, what was that like? My mother was somewhat apolitical. My father was a was a Republican, but he was kind of like a uh, blue collar Reagan Republican. Uh, like he was, I, he was never a Democrat, but he had blue collar instincts. And, and but you know, so he he wouldn't be an ideological libertarian or anything. But I have a feeling that if he had lived a little longer, I could have convinced him of the whole package. But so I went off to college, kind of like I don't know, middle of the road Republican, which is like the the thing I can't stand the most today. Like I was like a Mitt Romney. I was bad on foreign policy and I was unreliable on domestic policy, but I knew I wasn't, um, you know, Mike Dukakis. You know, I knew I wasn't Walter Mondale. I had that going for me. I, now, how did you go from being a, a respectable, moderate Romney style Republican to a, a dangerous uh, Michael Malice attendant, uh, anarcho-capitalist <laughs> libertarian? By the way, you mentioned Michael Malice. Michael Malice, one of my best friends, and uh, in the old days, it used to be people would say to me, uh, I'm so glad you introduced me to Michael Malice. Now it's, uh, hey, I learned about you from Michael Malice. That is not the way the universe is supposed to work, but that's the way things have turned out. But I would say the thing that changed me was going to the Mises Institute for a week in uh, the, the early 90s. Uh, two years in a row, I went for a week for their summer program. And I basically came out of that thinking, look, I either believe in something or I don't. And if I believe in it, I'm going to believe in it all down the line consistently. And well, so you got to explain man, that annoying person who is super consistent all the time. So explain what the Mises Institute is for people who may not know. The Mises Institute is named after Ludwig von Mises, who was one of the only economists ever to feature in a Batman comic, because that's how badass the guy was. He taught economics uh, in Europe even into through the 1930s. And as a Jew in Europe, that was not a comfortable place to be or an occupation to have because he was not preaching autarky uh, along the national socialist model. He was preaching libertarianism, uh, more or less. He was preaching classical liberalism and free markets, which was not really what the Nazi regime was known for favoring. So he eventually had to flee Europe. His his books were confiscated and papers taken. He had to come to the United States in 1940. He spoke some English, but it was not his first language. So he had to have help writing his future books. He came here with no job lined up, eventually got an unpaid position at NYU. But the, the significant thing is, if you think back to who was in the economics department at NYU in 1968, you can't name a single person. Nope. Who knows? But yet Ludwig von Mises is still talked about. His books are read uh, to this day, partly because of the Mises Institute, which is basically teaching economics along the lines that Mises taught it. And which means, in general, sound money, you know, money that's hard for the government to manipulate, 
um, international commerce, peace, um, and, and, and of course, also, a, a frankly, a non-empirical, non-mathematical approach to economics. If you look at the typical economics journal today, professionally, uh, it's, it's unreadable. I mean, they're, they're writing it so that they can look like physicists, which they have envy of physicists because physicists have equations. And so we have to have equations too. And all they're doing is adding unnecessary layers of complication to concepts that can be expressed verbally. So you have now a situation where there was a study, maybe it was 15 years ago, asking how many people read the average article in the American Economic Review. And the answer was two and a half. I mean, that's a basket case of a discipline, if that's, if that's the case. So the Mises Institute is a refreshing departure from all this, and it's plain-spoken economics for the intelligent layman. Now, what is its relationship to, and can you uh, give any further uh, expansive definition of what is colloquially called the Austrian School of Economics? Well, the Austrian School is an approach to economics that basically dates back to 1871, although you can see forerunners as with any school. But 1871 is when a guy named Karl Menger wrote Principles of Economics. And the central thing, about, I mean, if I, had to, if I had to whittle Austrian economics down, it would be the idea that human beings act and have goals and they use means to, to reach those goals. We don't need to know their psychology, which a lot of economists get caught up on. We don't need to know why they do what they do. We don't need to know what motivates them. We need to know they're goal-oriented and that they use means to achieve their ends. And the Austrian school is extremely, um, it's, it's, it, it places a lot of emphasis on the consumer. A lot of like classical economics wanted to look at the producer, wanted to look at the business firm, wanted to look at costs of production. Costs of production are what explain prices. But the Austrians would say, well, where did quote costs of production come from? From heaven? Like, that can't be the ultimate explanation. Then, then that just leads us to the question, where did they come from? So the Austrians instead start with the acting person and the acting consumer. And they say that the reason that the factors of production, like factories, machinery, equipment, assembly lines, whatever, the reason they have the value they have is that the consumer values the finished product of the thing that they make. If there was a machine that could do nothing but produce cigarettes and suddenly everybody quit smoking, that machine would go to zero in value doesn't matter how much time people put into building it. doesn't matter how much the company spent on it. It's the consumer's valuation of the final product that then trickles up through the production structure and gives those things the prices they have. So it's the opposite of what uh, most people think, but it, you know, it's, but it's correct. Uh, is the Mises, I, I was Googling it, the Mises Institute, it's it's not like it, it is not respected by, uh, you know, what, what consider themselves to be the the institutions of the day, the New York Times, is right. it? Is there a hierarchy uh, with the Mises Institute? Is it viewed as an eclectic libertarian or is it is it well-established and respected even among what we call, you know, fake news today? Well, fake news wouldn't much care for. There's just no, no question about it. As a matter of fact, the New York Times some years ago came to visit the Mises Institute and try and get some interviews and write something on it. And the chairman, Lou Rockwell, got wind that somebody from the New York Times was in the Mises Institute. He came thundering down the stairs and he ordered the person out. He said, you're a mouthpiece of the regime and you're not welcome here. Now that's very different from a lot of free market think tanks. If a New York Times reporter came came there, they'd roll out the red carpet. Oh, we're so delighted to have you here, Mr. Good New York Times reporter, sir. That's not really really how we are. Um, so, so we're not the kind of 
a group that would say, let's invite the chairman of the Federal Reserve over for a cocktail party. No, 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 no. We, that is not <laughs> the way we look at it. We're highly, highly critical. We want to abolish a, an institution like that. So, yeah, so the Mises Institute has fantastic scholars associated with it. Um, there's no doubt about that. But there are a lot of great scholars who are, let's say, uh, disparaged by the, the powers that be. And yet the story of Jordan Peterson reminds us that if you have a valuable message that helps people, to understand the world more clearly, it doesn't matter if you have the New York Times, the Boston Globe, the whole lot of them against you, you can still get your message out there to a, a people that's hungry for what you have to say. And what led to your interest? I kind of interrupted uh, your narrative in that regard of what led to your interest to want to be one of those people to be sort of what I would call a dissident scholar. In other words, a voice uh, that's very well informed, very well educated, very well, you know, very well literate, you might say. Uh, but willing to go against the regime, the cathedral, whatever language we use for the institutional establishment of the day. I came to the conclusion that I just wanted to understand how the world worked. And as I began to study economics, I came to the conclusion that a lot of things that the average person thinks are going to help him are actually making his situation worse. And I hate to see people sabotage themselves. So I wanted to help explain to people, no, don't do this, do that. Uh, but also I came to the conclusion, you know, especially from reading history, that the standard narrative, it, it just leaves out so much or distorts so much. I'll, I'll never forget, I was a freshman. It must have been the first three weeks of being in college. And I met a guy who has since turned totally mainstream and would never want me mentioning his name, which is just as well because I can't remember his name. But we were freshmen together, and he was asking me as a U.S. historian if I had ever read a book by Paul Johnson called Modern Times which is a book about the whole world, not just the U.S., but it has some good chapters on the U.S. And I said, no, no, I haven't. It's a huge book called Modern Times, The World from the 20s to the 80s. And he said, you should read that book because if you read it, you're going to discover that everybody they say was a bad president was a good one, and everybody they say was a good president was a bad one. He said, no, that's not true for all of them. Like some of them really were bad, <laughs> you know, or it's, you know, sometimes you know, it doesn't hold universally. But he says that if you read that, you're going to wonder what else has been left out? What other perspective you didn't get a chance to hear? So being the nerd I was, I got this book. Oh, what is it? Eight, I've got it around here somewhere. It's just like 800 pages. I sat down and read it. I said, well, this person told me. I remember being so youthful and energetic that I could I would pick up an 800-page book because somebody recommended it. And so I went through and read it, and I thought, wow. And it is a. it really is, in a way, a, uh, it's, it's a devastating attack on the 20th century on uh, the collectivism of the 20th century, the economics of the 20th century, the total war, the propaganda, all the sorts of things that we struggle with today, it is a vigorous polemic, a, a basically against a century. An absolutely fascinating book. And from that point on, I thought, I want to do what this guy did. I want to dig, dig down deep into the sources and come back out with stuff nobody knows, but they need to know. Education-wise, someone had asked, uh, you know, how did you afford Ivy League? But before we even get there, you studied, you got a PhD at, you said Harvard, um, undergrad at Harvard, and then PhD at Columbia. So uh, let me ask the crass question then. Uh, I mean, how did you go through it? How did you, how did you afford it? Well, the the answer is um, for well for undergrad, 
believe it or not, Harvard is actually pretty generous with people and they don't give merit-based scholarships on the grounds that, well, then everybody would deserve a scholarship because we're, we're bringing in the cream of the crop. So instead it was all need-based. And as I said, I came from a working class family and they came up with a package of um, you know loans that I, I paid off in not, not too long. They weren't particularly burdensome, outright grants. And I worked a little bit and it wasn't particularly glamorous work. I cleaned toilets for a living. But it, you know, it, it was a, I've since used that in some of my email marketing. I'll say, well, you know, in the old days I cleaned toilets and I wished I could be doing this, that this product teaches or whatever. So all these stories in my life, I always turn to marketing advantage, but that was basically it, that they were, gen they were generous enough with us that my parents who used to take an annual trip to Las Vegas didn't have to stop taking that trip. They could still actually live. They didn't have to eat macaroni and cheese uh, and, and drink tap water. Um, they were able to actually live fairly comfortably. I don't know if that's still how it is, but that's how it was in my day. Uh, it is in part because of a protest I was part of at Yale. So the uh, back uh, when I was at Yale, it was need-based financial aid, as you're describing, uh, need-blind admissions. So they didn't discriminate against you based on how much need you would have to meet the gap between tuition and and and, avail and available family income, as it was then calculated. Uh, I was part of a little protest organization that Yale tried to actually change it for the whole Ivy League. And uh, we helped cause some problems for Yale that ultimately led to the Yale not changing. And so the Ivy League didn't change. Wow. But, I didn't know that story. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a fun little side story. But uh, it's a whole it, it's as uh, I like to say, it's a, another story for another day. But in that capacity, uh, so you're one of the people you studied under for your Ph.D. was Alan Brinkley. Is that correct? Yeah, how did you know that? The uh, I uh, I did a little bit of research. Oh, okay, the, uh, well, good, good job. Yes, there's, 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 there's Viva Research and then Barnes Research, so that's <laughs> that's the next level. So that's Robert. The, well, uh, I've always been interested in Brinkley. What was that like? And can you give people a sense of Brinkley's perspective? Well, some of the older folks listening to us might remember his father, David Brinkley, who was a newsman. Um, and David Brinkley, he was soft spoken, but he had a dry wit. Alan Brinkley was soft-spoken, and that was about it. <laughs> that was about it. Now, the thing is, uh, Br Alan Brinkley is, is deceased. He died a few years ago. Uh, I, I don't know. I can't remember if it was Lou Gehrig's disease. He had, he had some uh, a very, very unfortunate last few years, but he was provost of the university. He was widely published, very respected within the profession, but very, very businesslike. So I remember there was a day when I, for some reason, a friend and I had decided we, I, I didn't have a beard in school. And a friend and I decided that until we finished our oral exams, we weren't going to shave. I don't know what, I forget what the logic behind this was. So I showed up at his office one day looking like hell. And so I felt like I needed to explain to him why. And he replied, well, that isn't really any of my concern. <laughs> okay. Strictly business. But what I liked about him was even though I could predict every word that was going to come out of that guy's mouth. I mean, he was, he was basically a Hillary Clinton Democrat. At the same time, he was extremely professional. He, he directed my dissertation so skillfully, uh, even though he was completely out of sympathy with me ideologically, he respected me as, a, as an up-and-coming scholar. And he did such a good job directing it that several years after I finished the program, my dissertation, I turned it into a book uh, called The Church Confronts Modernity, and it was published by Columbia University Press, which is no small feather in my cap. So I don't, again, that's another thing I don't know about not having been on campuses for, for 20 years, how many professors like that are there who have their ideological commitments, but they love their field and they're committed to their craft and they'll work with a young scholar, even if they 
they feel out of sympathy with him. I don't know, but that was the good fortune I had when I was there. Because what was fascinating is, I think I read his book uh, on Father Coughlin and Huey Long. Yes, right. He I did had too. an interest in curiosity and populism, which I think today, like, I don't know if you could cover Father Coughlin or you would be uh, like, what are you doing covering that person associated with this group and that group? And Coughlin obviously kind of fell off the yeah. <laughs> res a little bit there at the end, but, you know, it was an interesting populist figure before then. So, yeah, that's so I've always had interest in Brinkley as to why someone like him could have that sort of discernment and, you know, cause his father was known for being both, you know, an iconic journalistic figure, but also maybe a little bit of a prick. Uh, whereas Alan Brinkley, at least in the academic community, I knew he did not have that reputation. He was, he was, no, much as more a matter of fact, I think they, they, uh, they put together a book of essays by some of his uh, students after he died. And it was just everybody praising him for, for, for being a good guy. And what's interesting, though, was he was the most right-wing member of the Columbia History Department. Being a Hillary Clinton Democrat, he was by far the most right-wing figure. And I'm not saying that to be funny. That, that's, there's no doubt about it. There were, uh, at that time, Columbia really specialized in labor, uh, in labor history, which I had zero interest in, even though my own father was a teamster. I felt like I've learned, I've lived through enough labor history. I don't, I don't need any more. But there were a lot of Marxists doing that kind of stuff. And he was not a Marxist. And so in his classes, he would talk about the atrocities of the Soviet regime. Now, some Marxists, it's true, will say, well, the Soviet Union wasn't real communism. Like, we've all heard that. But they, they didn't all talk that way. Some of them did speak uh, with some affection about the Soviet Union, even into the 1980s. And so there was actually a brief campaign at Columbia where some left-wing group put up posters all over the campus condemning Brinkley for his right-wing deviationism because he was so critical of Stalin. And I remember him telling me in one of his rare uh, moments of, of, of humor, saying, I, I just never pictured myself being attacked for being too right-wing, <laughs> but here we are. Well, this, okay, this brings me back to a question that I've asked a bunch of people who, are, who consider themselves left-wing despite being rejected or demonized by the left. One person just asked, how did history become so dominated by the left wing, uh, not revisionist, but rather writing of history? I mean, it's uh, growing up, I remember people speaking highly of the Soviets. They fought the Nazis. You know, they lost millions of men fighting the Nazis. But for but for communist Russia, we would not have you know won the war necessarily against Hitler. And then you go ahead and whitewash all of the atrocities of the Soviets. How did history get so uh, written by what you can call leftist ideology? I wish I had the answer to this because it would unlock a lot of other questions, which is, I, I mean, I, to me, it looks like almost every institution and practically every discipline is in some way dominated by the left. Like even today, the, the, the most uh, populous churches, I think, are, are, are just all left wing down the line. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a Catholic and that's just almost just, yeah, you, you'll see the odd parish priest who might be a non-leftist, but he's persecuted by his bishop. And if, if there's one sentence of Latin in his mass, he's never heard from again. He's in a gulag somewhere. And this seems to be uh, throughout certainly the mainline churches. Everybody's struggling against some, some left-wing seminary or whatever. And so it just seems like it's every, it's, so it's the, the corporate CEOs all think the same way. The education establishment all thinks the same way. I guess it's it's the maybe it's the long march through the institutions. They took that seriously, whereas I think um, people who are non-leftists, I think they just don't organize their lives that way. I don't think they organize their lives thinking 
Um, I have to devote my life to the cause. And that means I have to go into this field or write this book or, or do whatever. I think that I think it, it tends to be you tend to be more likely to go into business or some other field. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I think to me, I think that's a it's a failure of people on the political right to to not have worked harder, frankly. I mean, today it's impossible to crack in. They're not going to hire you. Forget it. Um, it. You know, when I when I attended, I used to attend these these symposia put on by something called Liberty Fund. Liberty Fund publishes inexpensive editions of classic classical liberal works. So it could be the works of Adam Smith or or uh, John Stuart Mill or something. But they also put on these not advertised colloquia for scholars. It'll be fifteen scholars in a room. And everybody's been given some some book to read. And then there's a discussion leader. And you discuss this book for a few days at a fancy hotel and you eat fancy meals and then you go home and nothing comes out of it. Now, if it were me, a book would come out of that. Like we would produce something out of these. But it doesn't matter. I, I got to go to these because the fund had a, a, had a couple of hundred million dollars they didn't know what to do with. So they would put on these things. And as time went on, instead of these being forums where libertarians and maybe some conservatives could get together and really learn from each other, they began to think, well, you know, let's open it up to people on the left. Let's bring some people on the left and we'll have some really vigorous discussion. Now, there's nothing in principle wrong with that. But my point is, if a left-wing group had a couple hundred million dollars, they wouldn't sit there thinking, we're not really being true to our mission if we don't invite some dissident voices into this conversation. That thought would never dawn on them. And so I think that is what's going on. There's an imbalance in the way the two sides look at the world. Um, if, if you look at a typical history department, it, they all think the same way. Whereas if, whereas typically if you have a group of you know, people like me, half of them will say, well, we really should bring in a few other voices with a few different perspectives. Now, that's in a way, that's great. In a way, that shows how broad-minded they are. But if one side feels guilty about presenting their perspective and the other side views it as their life's mission, how do you think the composition of academia is going to shake out over time? Yeah, it's like, it's the gap between a freedom mindset versus a totalitarian mindset. The totalitarian—it was like where I became inclined. I tell people that I'm a constitutional populist with anarchistic tendencies, um, and the and it was it was a part of a governor school project when I was a kid in Tennessee. Uh, we had an old populist kind of uh, democratic governor back when those existed on the Democratic Party side. Oh, you know, the guy was named Ned Ray McWhorter, grew up the son of a sharecropper, all that. He created a governor school program for basically any kids in public schools or private schools uh, to go to these special summer projects where you would learn, whether it was, you know, for the arts, for history, for international studies, whatever. Um, but we'll, they did a bunch of great projects that summer. It was like some sort of dissident institution that sort of snuck in through the rest. And one of it was they put us in a room, 100 people, and I think they were teaching us about currency, but it was really about power in the state. And basically, it was the first time I realized that I was like, okay, what the state really is is a private is a is a monopoly on the means of certain forms of violence, and a means on the legal right of violence. And what's the likelihood that? And there's we're going to pick four people in this group of a hundred to have that exclusive means and monopoly. What's the likelihood those four people are the best four people to have that power in the room? Right. Chances are it's going to be, especially the ones that are going to be successful seeking it out. Uh, I call it the, you know, the Alex Jones revelation. The people who successfully seek power are not the people you ever want to see have power. And it becomes the problem of power in law school. That's how it's taught in contracts and things like that. How rational self-interest isn't always protected because the problem of power can contaminate someone. Someone can do something against their economic self-interest in the name of power because that's the contaminating effect of power. The Oh, go ahead. Oh, yeah. So in that uh, context, 
it, like you explained sort of your your general tra uh, trajectory in intellectually where did the interest in uh or or disapproval of the concentration of power in the state this totalitarian mindset we see reflected in the academy and who's allowed in and who's not allowed in but this it's it's infecting so many of our institutions in the contemporary age as sort of the gramsci walk through the institutions we're seeing this totalitarian mindset and things like everything from comics to theater to, I mean, Marvel's going to make a new movie that's the new Thor movie, and it's basically the female Thor movie, and it's not even a good female Thor movie, you know, that kind of routine. What led to a deeper skepticism of the state as an institution that we should always kind of be aware and cognizant of? Well, first of all, I would say that when I was in school, which was 1990 to 94, you know, things were bad, but they weren't as bad as they are now. I mean, there was a huge bias, but not nearly as bad as today. Uh, it, you know, I, it, we still struggled to get dissident voices on campus, but we never had the sense that they wanted to murder us, <laughs> you know, where sometimes you're not so sure today. So I think today it's, it's much, much worse. I mean, if you think about somebody like, again, Walter Mondale, you know, absolutely inoffensive presidential candidate, which was his undoing. He was such a bore in 1984. Who was going to vote for that guy? But, you know, that guy was not, he was saying we need to raise taxes a little more than Reagan wants to raise them. He, he was saying Reagan secretly wants to raise them. I'm going to raise them too. Uh, like that was his campaign message. I'm going to raise taxes. So is he, but he's not going to tell you that. That was not a very good campaign message. But notice his campaign message was not, I can't stand the sight of most of the people in this country. <laughs> you know, and I'm going to ram down your throat the idea that you are a terrible person and you need to modify the way you look at the world before you'll be admitted to polite society. Nobody was thinking like that. So, so it's, so it, it was slower for me to get going because, because things weren't as bad in those days, but in terms of the concentration of power, well, again, honestly, the reading that I started to do on my own, um, you have to be an autodidact in this day and age. If you're just going to stick with what's on the syllabus, forget about it. You'll get the establishment view, which is useful to know, but you're not going to get beyond that. But reading Paul Johnson's book, my gosh, that that is the the central lesson of the twenty of the twentieth uh, century. Was you look at the various totalitarian regimes? What did they do? I mean, they they basically took ideas in that had existed in germ in Western political thought for a long time and turned them up to eleven. Because if you look back to Thomas Hobbes, Hobbes Hobbes's sovereign is authoritarian but not totalitarian. But nevertheless, that sovereign is a force that precedes everything. There's no pre-existing uh, cities or states that have liberties of their own that the sovereign has to respect. The sovereign grants those liberties. And if he wants to take them back, he can take them back. Now, that's the opposite of the American system. But that idea that, you know, in medieval Europe, it was just the opposite. Universities had rights of their own. Cities had rights of their own. The church had rights of, of their own. Um, of course, the aristocracy had rights. Uh, all these different layers of society had rights. And that's why when you look at the the titles that some of these kings had, you know, like, like, you see the comical version in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. He's king of the Britons and he's defender of this and the savior of that. These long titles were not an indication of vanity on the part of the king, but they indicated that the king is part of a web of relationships, pre-existing relationships that came before him. And it's his job to protect and nurture the liberties of these smaller groups. Today, we've taken the Hobbesian logic and 
taken it to its logical conclusion where there are no such relationships that that the sovereign can't just overturn, cancel, modify, penalize. And so now that has has been carried through. I mean, I mean of course, we see it in the United States uh, quite a bit in the overriding of federalism, in there being a, a central government policy on all kinds of issues under the sun. Now we've seen the states and the smaller institutions beginning to reassert themselves in the age of COVID and beginning to reassert themselves because of the woke stuff. But that's the phenomenon that I saw taking place was this idea that instead of the sovereign being there as the protector of pre-existing liberties, the sovereign is the generous grantor of liberties that can be canceled at any time. Well, then you wind up with a society like we have now. Funny, funny time for this question. And I'm starring uh, a lot of the super chats, which Tom, I'll, I'll try to get to, uh, to if I can afterwards. What's the difference between authoritarian and totalitarian between between both of you? The the ruler can be quite brutal in making sure that there are no breakaway provinces or um, that there are no groupings of people trying to assert rights against the center. But the authoritarian doesn't care what you think. He doesn't care what you eat. He doesn't care about your lifestyle. You just so that's kind of like um, I mean there you can find a number of dictators in the world today who as long as you stay out of politics they're not going to bother you they're not going to look into what your private emails say or what books you're reading or what you know what your record is at the pri- at the public library so I, to me that's the difference yeah I think of authoritarian as depth whereas I think of a totalitarian as width oh that's you know, very good too the uh, uh, now speaking of which speaking of, your first book as you mentioned dissertation was about the Catholic Church. Yep. Today the Pope was back in the news. Oh, uh, I don't want to know. People, I don't want. Do I have to talk about this? What was he saying now? The Second Amendment didn't come down from Sinai, so it's time to change it. Now, of course, I'm a Baptist, so my first reaction was, "Well, the Pope didn't come down from Sinai either." So the, uh, but any thoughts on? I've been. There were aspects of the Pope's openness to certain uh, non-conservative components, however you want to put it, that I thought could be promising in terms of the church dealing with certain histories and problematic aspects of how they've used power in certain places. But mostly he's just become a woke Pope and it's really been distressing to witness it. Any thoughts on the second amendment didn't come down from Sinai. We should just ignore it. You know, it's, if you could see, If you could read, and you can, of course, in the age of the internet, you can read documents written by uh, Pope Pius XII in the 1950s or Pius X in uh, the early 20th century. You read these documents, and these are documents written by badasses who understand who they are and that they're not here to please the powers that be. Uh, It seems to me that Pope Francis, almost everything he does is calculated it's almost like, please, please, everybody, I, I know you don't like the crazy costume I wear and the crazy religious ceremonies I do, but please, please let me into your exclusive club. It is a, it's a pathetic display. He's utterly unimpressive intellectually, this guy. And in my opinion, and now I'm going to lose, you know, the, the Catholic viewers are now going to turn it off in disgust, but I think he's an apostate. I actually don't think he has the Catholic faith. I, I, I prove me wrong, but I, I, I observe it. I, if he does, then he's acting in an absolutely bizarre, inexplicable way. So, yeah, the Second Amendment thing is like almost the least of his problems. And then secondly, if you have to tell me how humble you are, you're not humble. You know, the whole thing about, oh, look at my simplicity and I'm not going to wear this and I'm not going to live in the, the um, you know, the papal household. I'm going to live over here and I, I'm going to, you know, it's a, come on, 
right? Well, and not to mention, everybody will tell you that privately, the way he governs the church, forget about this public face of mercy and liberalism. He governs it with an iron fist. And, and again, unlike, see, this is a very interesting parallel with the rest of society. His predecessor, Benedict XVI, was a right-wing liberal. I mean, basically all the popes since Vatican II have been, have been either left-wing or right-wing liberals. There have been no traditional Catholics since Vatican II. So, so, but, but, he, but Benedict was a right-wing liberal because he does believe in the, the seven sacraments and he believes in the moral teaching of the church. He, he believes that some things, though, are kind of up for grabs. But he did try to bring in the tradition, bring the traditional liturgy of the church back and things like that. But Benedict would be the sort of person who he would appoint somebody as bishop because that guy has, you know, he's put in his time and he's been around a long time, uh, even though he may disagree with me. That is not the way Francis looks at it. I am going to make this church over into my image if it's the last thing I do is the way he governs it. And so, again, that's the difference between how one side looks at governing and how the other side does. One side is, well, you know, let's try to make sure everybody has a voice. And the other side is, yeah, there'll be a voice all right, but it's going to be mine. Uh, well, let me ask you this. Your dissertation, I, I took the name down, but I didn't get it clearly enough to reread. What was your dissertation on in terms of uh, a thesis? I was interested in the progressive era, so early 20th century history. And I, I always thought it was interesting that in my textbook, I never saw anybody who was critical of anything that happened in the progressive era. And I thought somebody must have been. Somebody didn't like John Dewey and his educational theories, right? There must have been somebody. There must have been somebody who didn't like the philosophy of William James, right? Somebody somewhere must have been a critic of this stuff. So I thought, I, I, I wonder what Catholics were saying at the time, because they were pretty hardcore in those days, really hardcore. There were no felt banners and, and dancing girls in the sanctuary in 1910, you know? So let's see what these people uh, had to say. So I went back and looked at old Catholic periodicals from that time, and man, were these people hardcore. And I thought, what, there's something here. No one's ever written about this. It was an intellectual history of Catholicism during the Progressive Era. And one of the things that has gone completely unreported about the Progressive Era was that a lot of intellectuals in the Progressive Era were saying that what we need in the United States is a new creed that can bind us together, since we all know that only stupid people believe in religion. So that's not going to work. So we need uh, a, a new creed, a secular creed that can bind us. And we got to create that. Now, this creed has to be a creed that is um, that encourages people to be open-minded and flexible, you know, so that they can they can flex with what the elites want, basically. Well, now imagine what somebody who teaches that, what would they think about the Catholic school system, which is teaching dogmatic truths to everybody and is not teaching flexibility and let's all have the same creed and the and and you know, and they're teaching we have the 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 exclusive, we, we have the truth. Well, we can't have that in a modern democratic society. There is no truth. Or we, we come to the truth together, you know, with our new creed. And the Catholics saw this and they said, we are, ain't no way we're going for this. We are going to be the ones who stand up against this. And so it was an interesting thing to see. Here are Catholics trying to assimilate into American society, trying to show that they're not weirdo aliens. But at the same time, the elite intellectuals of American society are kind of saying, um, you better change the way you look at the world because it's not compatible with the democracy that we favor. In fact, John Dewey believed that the Catholic school system was an absolutely outrageous uh, instrument against democracy. So I chronicled this in, in that book. And so, yeah, I mean, it's a book written for academics, 
uh, and it, you know, published by an academic press. But I think you know a Catholic layman who's curious about what the Catholic Church was like merely two lifetimes ago or one and a half, I think would find something valuable in it. Now, how did you stumble across uh, one of my favorite American historical popular intellectuals, as I would call him, in the Thomas Paine tradition, uh, Lysander Spooner? Uh, because I've always liked Lysander Spooner. Fascinating. You know, he started off as a real true believer in American constitutionalism. He wrote a great uh, text with Frederick Douglass, The Unconstitutionality of Slavery. Yep. I think it's absolutely right, by the way. It was actually a listed exhibit in the Wesley Snipes trial, had he ever testified. Whoa, uh, I didn't know that. <laughs> so the, uh, but then he ultimately becomes kind of a leader of American anarchistic intellectual thought, in large part because of his bitter disappointment at watching the corruption of the American legal system, yep. both in the legislative branch, the executive, executive branch, and in particular, the judicial branch, which he started off as a true blue believer in. How did you come across uh, Lysander Spooner? Well, I guess in those years when I, I uh, back in 93, 94, and then maybe 92, I started going to libertarian organizations, um, events for students. And one of those had a sample from um, the Constitution of No Authority. And th I just thought, I don't know if I'm in the right room for this. It took me a little while to get acclimated to some of this radicalism. But once I did... I did become, I had exactly the same interest in him that, that you have. I find him fascinating as a person, but also his ideas are fascinating, uh, especially because in this day and age now, the, the Supreme Court has become front and center again. People are talking about different ways of interpreting the Constitution. And he's very different from, he's not a living, breathing Constitution guy, but he's also not an original intent guy either. Uh, his, his approach, as, of course, as you know, I'm saying this for the audience, but his approach was original meaning that... I can't be bound by what some people said behind closed doors in some room that I wasn't even in. I can only be bound by the words they put on the paper. And his view was that since slavery is such an outrage against natural law, we have to interpret any apparent reference to slavery in the Constitution as if it's not in favor of slavery, unless the words absolutely demand that interpretation. And he says none of them do. The word slavery is not in the Constitution. And if you look at every clause that is supposed to refer to slavery, I can give you a perfectly benign definition, a perfectly benign interpretation of it. And so, therefore, we should abide by that benign interpretation rather than admit the outrage that there could be slavery authorized in the Constitution. That's a very interesting approach. And it was a minority approach among abolitionists. Most of them, like William Lloyd Garrison, felt like the Constitution uh, was a compact with the devil because it authorized slavery, and he did his best to, to argue against it. So I, I actually find that a very, very interesting line of argument to pursue. Let's look at what the words meant. And the thing is, whereas if you were an original intent a juris, um if you were involved in jur jurisprudence of original intent, you would look back and say, well, it's quite clear they intended these to refer to slavery, so therefore they do. And his view was, I don't care what they intended. I, I care what they wrote. And they didn't write that that's what they wanted to do, so we're not doing it. Exactly. I mean, it, it's a more of a populist interpretation because my view is what makes the Constitution the Constitution is what the ordinary person thought when they voted on it to some degree. That And for we should start with the text. And to the degree there's some common understanding that can be popularly uncovered and discovered, great. I have always been a skeptic of all of this original intent aspect because it invites the selectivity of historians 
who can, you know, one, there's a lot of stuff we, we, we can't know. Like my, my, all of my great, great grandparents, every Barnes in Rhode Island voted no on the original constitution because there was no bill of rights. So the no bill of rights, not interested. And Rhode Island even tried to hold out, try to print our own currency, uh, oppose the centralized national army. Of course, they sent in the army. So we were like, okay, we apologize. Never mind. <laughs> we'll, we'll just put that in our diaries for future generations. But the, uh, but I think he was absolutely right about that. And it's not common within the liberal academy, but often like what I find fascinating, populism uh, uh, as an idea or you could call it liberty or freedom in other contexts. The ordinary person often has these ideas, but the academy often uh, shuns them. And so, because like, I think Spooner and Douglas were right. Uh, there's also other arguments, but even Blackstone and other people said that unless you clearly defined who and what is a slave, there no one could be a slave. Unless you put it, because it was so abhorrent to natural law, right. it had to be specifically outlined. And if we were going to do an original intent debate, they all knew that when they wrote the Constitution. They all well, were aware. And that's the same principle in Somerset's case in the, in the 18th century. Somerset's case involved a slave who set foot on, I, I guess it was British soil. And the argument was, well, since, um, since slavery is an outrage against natural law, it, if, it, if there isn't any positive law establishing it, it has to be presumed not to exist. So therefore, he's freed by virtue of stepping onto free soil. This is, see, this is all really interesting stuff. I, I, I could talk about this all day. The, well, and I think it's an underappreciated, undervalued aspect of the historical debate. Um, you know, the because the other thing is I see William Lloyd Garrison and that wing of abolitionism as the Yankee totalitarians, uh, great, great granddaddy of today. And they had a similar obsession with being like, take, for example, the anti-war left in America, especially since the 1960s, in that Garrison was obsessed with saying slavery condemned America. That showed America was bad. The Constitution was bad. Our founding was bad, et cetera. Whereas you look at Lysander Spooner, he was more in the Huey Long, Martin Luther King, others who said, no, our, our Constitution is great. And we should assume it was great. And if we apply that, it actually says slavery is not legal here, if you understand it from a certain. And so it's, so it's not only a different legal intellectual approach, but it's a different approach to America. Like today in the anti-war movement, my view is the anti-war movement has been badly undermined by an anti-American bias that has existed since the 1960s. Historically, Americans were deeply anti-foreign entanglement. You know, John Quincy Adams' speech is still famous today because that was the mindset. We don't go abroad searching for monsters to destroy, lest we effectively become the monster ourselves. We'd be the exemplar of liberty by not being the imperial colonizer that we have just escaped from uh, in Europe. And we definitely don't get entangled in European wars, yet here we are today, back entangled in the European war. The in that, but so much of like the anti-war left that the any uh, that I say that they often should get a check from the war machine because in the 60s, all of a sudden, to be anti-war is to be anti-American. Right. To be anti-war means you burn the flag. To be right. anti-war means you spit on the soldier. That wasn't the tradition of anti-war in America at all. Indeed, it's amazing how many Republicans have forgot. Republicans were the non-interventionist party yeah. up until the 1950s. Yeah. Uh, and suddenly, you know, Josh Hawley's rediscovering those roots probably because of popular blowback, but it's still good to, to see him. I don't care what the reason is, as long as they do the right thing. Exactly. How much do you think, like, can you, like the old right, the populist right uh, is a deep anti-war movement that has deep 
that's pro-American, and because it's pro-American, very anti-foreign entanglement, very anti-interventionist, very anti-war, as many as often as And that's really the dominant American historical political trend, not the sort of deviant night, late 1960s, people mad at their daddies want to burn the flag, folks. Right, right, right. And as a matter of fact, I personally think that Vietnam is an anomaly. I think for, for the most part, uh, the, at least the establishment left has favored war. Uh, in the, the Spanish-American War, you see all kinds of progressives saying we need to we need to make over Spain. You know, we have to punish Spain for its lack of progressivity. Uh, World War One, overwhelmingly, you can count on one hand how many uh, left-wing intellectuals were against. What, what, I mean, Jane Addams, Randolph Bourne, and you know who the hell else? I mean, almost nobody. They were all in favor of the war, uh, partly because um, partly because they thought it was a, it would be an avenue of domestic reconstruction. That the opportunity presented by the war would mean an opportunity to plan the economy, an opportunity to train the people to understand that limited government is a thing of the past, and that we are going to dictate resource allocation and whatever else. The, if you all you have to do is read the New Republic magazine, which was always at war with the old Republic, but it was started around 1913 or 14, right around the time of World War One. And if you read them. They are fanatically demanding entry into World War One, and this just goes on. I mean, even during the Cold War, basically the establishment left was in favor of of almost all those interventions. And then after the Cold War, they have favored pretty much all the interventions. Um, now it's true you can you can tell me that there's Caitlin Johnstone in Australia and Jimmy Dore, and I love those people and God bless them. But the fact that we can name all of them tells you something's wrong on the left. You know that I can. But and again on the right. I can kind of name for you all the prominent anti-war people on the right, but I think more and more that's the side where 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 uh, you're seeing the anti-war stuff come out. Whereas it's it's the establishment left that wants to call you a a, a pawn of Russia if you're anti-war or you're you're uh, or you, what what are you a support Saddam Hussein whatever this crazy whatever it is well, you can't even have a rational conversation. Now that you mention it, because I flagged one of these, starred, not flagged, a super chat familiar. I didn't understand the question, why don't you want to save the people of Ukraine? Now I think contextually, Tom, I haven't followed you for very long on Twitter. I presume now by being anti-war, people twist that into saying you don't care about the people of Ukraine and you're willing to let you know innocent people die by virtue of your non-interventionist uh, philosophy. I mean, what's what's the response? I I, I don't want to I don't want to say it for you, but what's the response to that? Yeah, the the response is in the real world. Sometimes you're not faced with a good option and a bad option. Sometimes you're faced with all bad options, and you have to choose the least, the one that's least likely to wind up destroying the whole world. You know, so it's not a matter of well, if I press this button, everybody is saved, but if I press that button, Ukraine gets whatever. We can't. We come on. Now. I mean, we've got to grow up from from that stuff. So what's what's happening right now, it seems to me, is pushing us toward a, a situation where I don't think deaths are going to be minimized. I think the, the possibility of, lar of an even larger scale conflict uh, has been growing. And I don't think that would be good for anybody. And I don't think I don't I mean, even to hear to hear some of the elites even quietly saying, well, you know, a small scale nuclear war is actually winnable. Like I don't want to hear them talking like that. So I think there was an article. I don't know where it was Huffington post 10 years ago, a small scale nuclear war might actually be good for a global warming. I swear to you, you can Google yeah, it. I saw that too. I saw um, that too. And, and the thing is I can't solve every problem on earth. 
And U.S. intervention has generally caused more problems than it's solved. But I can't I can't solve all those problems. But and moreover, I sh I am. And this was what uh, J.D. Vance got in big trouble for. And I thought what he said made perfect sense. It's, um, you know, I, I wish the people of Ukraine well, but I'm primarily concerned about what's going on with my people right here. Well, the thing is, that's the natural morality that has existed throughout the world since the beginning of time, that it is not my job to go looking for uh, problems to solve outside my household. First, my responsibility is to my household. Then it's to my extended family. Then it's to my friends. Then it's to my town. It, is, it can't possibly be to every conflict in the world, which if we're being consistent, we would have to be concerned about all these. I, can't, I don't have the moral capacity to, to, to consume all this, and I don't have the material capacity. To, and, and even if I did, sometimes they say, well, you have to intervene against this bad guy because otherwise... Um, you know, this bad guy will cause all these problems. If I intervene against that bad guy, that gives the green light to other bad guys that, well, the U.S. is tied down over here. Now I can, you see, there is no simple solution to all this. What we're facing is the human condition. And the way, the best way we know of to, to minimize conflict is not to risk a showdown between the two major powers in the world, um, but to do what we can to diplomatically get our way out of it. And, and no one's talking like that. No one is saying we need to find some. No one's even looking for a diplomatic solution. And so meanwhile, Ukraine is just being dragged around and dragged around and dragged around by people who claim to champion it. But all they're doing is, is, having it, is winding up having them endure uh, more and more suffering. So I, I, can't, I can't solve all the problems of the world. And, I can't, and we can't solve this problem without risking destroying the world. But, but I, I was listening to Dan Crenshaw, his full interview with Trey Gowdy, who I didn't realize is now, you know, working with Fox News. And, you know, they basically say the quiet part out loud, which is this is a good time for us to use Ukraine to fight a proxy war with Russia. And now people are accusing you of not caring for the Ukraine or Ukrainians by virtue of saying we should back away from this, as opposed to what they're saying, which is let's use Ukrainian civilians and Ukraine to fight a proxy war, no American soldiers and no civilian deaths, but it's going to be Ukrainian soldiers and Ukrainian civilian deaths uh, by virtue of a proxy war that we want to fight. We're going to seize this opportunity to do it. I, I, I would flip the question around and say what you're doing, what you're specifically supporting is uniquely bad for Ukrainian, innocent Ukrainian civilians, period. But alas, you know, um, the the, it seems that the leftist media controls the dialogue, controls the, the, the narrative. So if you're anti-confrontation with Russia, you just want Ukrainians to die. And as much as if you were anti-lockdown, you just wanted granny to die. Oh, geez. Yeah, that's exactly what it's been. And it's, it's always, what was the name of that woman who famously interviewed Jordan Peterson and she misstated every one of his arguments? Kathy something? Yeah, well, it was the British lady who did the same thing to Lavrov. So Lavrov, the Russian ambassador, appears on her channel, and she accuses him of. She she asks him when he's when is he going to be ready for his war crimes trial? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean it's that routine, and it, yeah. especially the British, the British of the British Empire. You know, I mean, I mean the lack of historical awareness. But the other thing is, I thought this also fits into sort of a certain context, which is about the that war is used that the pretext to enter mass global war or war anywhere. Uh, total war mindset mentality is seems a variation of the sort of the rise of the managerial professional clerical class controlling governmental institutions. 
Like I call it, I mean, people kind of recognize it with communism. They semi-recognize it with fascism. The myth of leftist historians has been to pretend fascists were capitalists when they were not. They weren't seizing property because they were capitalists. Um, but the same, but really also corporate progressivism in the West, this sort of, pro or progressive corporatism, however you want to utilize it, this, it, its own version of fascistic power, just a little bit differently. But all, but for corporate progressivism, the excuse for state power, the excuse to give some, uh, you know, philosophy major a job, is always some poor population, some vulnerable population, some abused population. So it, it's in the name of you know poor immigrants and and poor black voters and other poor voters that they decide to uh, create a state ballot. Well, how does that state ballot then get used? It gets used to keep third parties and independent candidates off the ballot. Mm -hmm. It gets used to break the back of political machines and urban ethnic centers and in the parts of the rural South because you have a lot of illiteracy. So now they no longer are given their ballot before they go in. Um, so that a lot of what was seen as reform for democracy, what they really mean by democracy is their class gets to run the rest of us. Yes. It's not real democratizing power in the hands of the individual, in the hands of the small businessmen, in the hands of the ordinary worker, in the hands of the ordinary person. And war is just an extension of it. It's always like that's where, you know, as you, as you were talking about, you know, Bob Dole, 1976 vice presidential debate with Walter Mondale. He said, if I could count up all the dead from all the Democrat wars, yeah. which is one of my all-time favorite states. The best thing he ever said, and he spent the rest of his life apologizing for it. I know. It's like, he shouldn't be. That, that's Kansas Republicanism. That's East Tennessee-style Republicanism, which was, I mean, most of them are Republican because they hated all the wars. I mean, like when I was talking to J.D. Vance, and he was trying to decide, how aggressive do I express my opinions on Ukraine? Because I'm going to have this whole deep state apparatus attack me. I'm going to have the media, the money, all of that's going to come after me. But my instincts are I served in Iraq based on a lie. I'm not going to send any other kids to yeah. die on a lie. Yeah. Um, and so he did. But I was like, you're in Ohio. Uh, this is the this is Senator Robert Taft, the senator who voted against the United States joining NATO in the late 1940s, who was one of the most popular Republicans in the country for a reason. That that's the history. It's a history that the Wall Street Journals and the National Reviews and the Rupert Murdochs have denied people from knowing about and understanding in ordinary Republican politics. One of the editors of National Review just tweeted out the other day something along the lines of I can't get over the selfishness of people in the West. You know, pay a few extra bucks for gas. Look at the sacrifices they're making in Ukraine. I thought, what, what do I need you for? I already have MSNBC and CNN and and for the most part, Fox News. You know, like, what do I need you for? What kind of an alternative are you? So I've come to the conclusion. Now, I, I, I'm getting more uh, red-pilled all the time, and yet I thought I was the king of the red pill. So um, I'm getting more red-pilled all the time. And so I, I'm increasingly convinced, and, I, and this is going to sound so obvious to half your listeners, but it took me a while to get to this point, that the elites... Well, first of all, the elites do not have our well-being at heart, uh, first of all. But but I think it's more than they don't have our well-being at heart. It's almost like they've declared war on us. Let, let's, they they want to take away inexpensive uh, um, energy, not just from us, but, but from the developing world where it's lethal to take away uh, inexpensive energy. They want us, um, they, they want to impose crazy, you know, they want to um, put crazy worldviews into our kids' heads and not tell us about it. They they want uh, they want us eating like soy burgers instead of meat. You know they want us to eat sludge. I mean you know they, and then remember these are the same people who for years and years said don't eat eggs, don't eat eggs. What are you? What's wrong with you? Now could it be coincidental 
that every damn thing these people favor involves making our lives worse. I mean, if, if it were just a coincidence, occasionally they would do something that improves <laughs> our lives. They would just fall ass backwards into it. And that never happens. There's, there's a concept called fractal wrongness. Every step, every decision they make would be wrong. And you would not be able to, to get there even by random chance. Flip a coin, you're going to hit heads every now and again. But if fractal wrongness, if it were accidental, it would be unexplainable or inexplicable. You should and write a book way, called fractal wrongness. That it, would be awesome. <laughs> it's a beautiful concept where like every decision they've made has been wrong. And I'll, we'll, we'll get into COVID sooner than later, but like, Every decision along the line in COVID has been wrong in the sense in that it has will cause more damage than any good it could have ever done in the first place. And 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 Tom, I just I brought up a chat of my own that said, I don't know that you've realized that after red pill is black pill, but don't get to the black pill. The, the double red pill or the red pill suppository is is before the black pill. Yeah, it, the, you know, eat bugs. First of all, I've tasted bugs before COVID. They're fine. But when someone tells you you're going to own nothing and be happy, and then that goes from conspiracy theory to reality, you do start to wonder if the goal is to not revert back to what has been the historical um, consistency, not the anomaly that is America, which is, uh, I don't know, feudal society might not be the right word, but uh, where we're ruled by superiors and yeah. freedom, the, the American experiment was the anomaly and not the rule. And we're just going to go right back to having landlords, superiors who tell the lowly hoi polloi how they have to live. This brings me back to one question. What is libertarianism as a concept? Um, and how does, it, how does it play into preserving what has been the most beautiful thing of the American experiment of democracy? Sure. Uh, first of all, in case anybody's curious, I'm not drinking uh, alcohol. This is liquid death. It's, <laughs> it's actually just spring water. I don't know if you've ever seen this, but they call it that. The way they get away, they just wanted to call it liquid death. But the way they explain it away is it murders your thirst. So that was our sponsor message for this episode. <laughs> I'm going straight to liquiddeath.com to see. To yeah, see oh, they're awesome. I love these people so much. And on the side, they have the story of the company. It's so beautiful. Anyway, um, well, I, in a way, this has made me, all these realizations that I've had have made me more of a libertarian in a, in a way, because every once in a while you're tempted to think, well, you know, maybe the state could do a, a, a better job on this particular thing, or maybe it would be better if we could just raise a lot of money quickly and the state is good at that and we could do this and that. But I look at the decisions these people make and they are so consistently catastrophically bad that I just feel like even if there is a case where it would be easier for us to complete a project if we could just coerce a lot of people. You know what? We'll fundraise on the internet and solve it that way. But there's just no way we can give the American establishment any more power. And can you explain the difference between uh, society and the state? Like, and I, was, I often tell people, you don't have to have the state. You don't have to give this small group of people disparate power over the rest of us and the legal right of violence over the rest of us. And then you throw economic violence in there, our current you know, currency driven system into that equation uh, in order to have the benefits of society. People have throughout all of history organized collectively to do very good, positive things without the existence of the state. Exactly right. By the way, I'm, I'm, I'm distracted because I see some of these great comments like about the anti-imperialist league, which I love. I gave a talk on them once. Um, but I, I, I hear you. I mean, that's exactly, exactly the way I think. So in terms of society and the state, uh, the state, as as you say, is basically the the organization of 
of, of, of uh, violence. So that is to say the state is the institution in society that is said to have the power to initiate violence and collect taxes, uh, or I repeat myself. Uh, but the but society is is what is is the, what we might call the voluntary sector of of of, um, of our world, and that is the sector in which we operate ninety nine percent of the time. When you mow my lawn, I pay you twenty five dollars. You know, and there's no coercion involved, no threats. Um, society is is where all is where the creativity comes from. Is where we give free reign to people to try things out and see if they work, see if they don't work. Um, Society is where we don't have organized coercion, and you can make your decision. And in a way, the democracy helps to, to show us the difference between society and the state, because when we're dealing with a political election, well, we have two choices, sometimes three choices. And if, if 51% goes for one choice, if there, if there are only two of them, then everybody has to live with that one choice. Everybody has to live with that. Whereas when it comes to music, if not everybody likes my brand of progressive rock, well, they don't all have to listen to it because we don't have some collective vote that then determines everybody has to do the same thing. Everybody has to eat the same same ice cream flavor. Society is where we all let, are able to have our individual choices. Um, we're able to live according to those. And we're able to live in peace with our neighbor according to those. So whatever social trend you see that you think is destructive, it tends to be amplified. It, it tends to be a trend that the state wants to be part of. And so I find that what, whether it's undermining the family or pushing quote unquote equality or whatever it is, the state loves it because it means the state gets to pry its way into the most intimate details of the lives of the people. And I, I mean, I, or, or when I mentioned equality, because equality is a word that sounds good, right? Everybody seems to favor equality on some level, but equality is one of these weasel words that can kind of mean anything. Do, do you mean equality of opportunity? Do you mean equality of result? Do you mean equality of uh, material condition? What do you mean? Well, it can always mean something different, which means the state will never run out of ways to, to intervene in your life or rob you or, or make you miserable because it can never ultimately reach that goal. Uh, Robert Nozick used to give this example um, back in the days of Wilt Chamberlain playing basketball. Suppose we have a situation where everybody is materially equal, and then Wilt Chamberlain goes and plays basketball. Everybody wants to watch him play. And so everybody pays a dollar to go watch him play. Well, after that transaction is over, we no longer have equality because now Wilt Chamberlain has a ton of money and everybody in the stands has slightly less than they had before. So what are we supposed to do then? Is Will Chamberlain supposed to give all the money back and we start all over? I mean, what does this mean? Like, what are you even aiming at? But it's it's one of these concepts that because it can never be reached, the state loves it. Or the war on drugs. They'll never be successful with that. So they love it. They thrive on it because there are interest groups now that get paid big salaries. They get all these resources. And you can never actually break out of it. So my view is I don't want to launch any of these wars, wars on drugs, poverty, inequality, whatever it is. It always makes the situation worse. It always impoverishes us. And it enriches the most parasitic, backward, awful sociopaths in society. So I am more libertarian than ever now. Oh, so don't you dare ask me who's going to build the roads. And that's somebody from Sweden. I was just in Stockholm a couple of weeks ago. The only people wearing masks in Stockholm are American tourists. <laughs> well, Tom, who's going to build the roads? <laughs> like, forget who built the cages. So what, what is, 
here's the thing. Like I, I studied philosophy. I studied Thomas Locke. I know what li libertarian, I didn't even know that it was called libertarianism. I don't think, except in retrospect, what is libertarianism as a political philosophy? And why is it so underrepresented on a political ideological yeah. scale? Yeah, that's a great question. So what it is, you can say very, very briefly, libertarianism, like any political philosophy, is on some level concerned with figuring out when the use of violence is acceptable. And the libertarian places a very high threshold on when violence is acceptable. It's acceptable in self-defense, but the principal uh, moral code uh, or, or, or um, proposition of libertarianism is the non-aggression principle, which just simply says you shouldn't initiate aggression against a peaceful person. Now, most people hear that and they say, well, I already believe that. And I'm not a libertarian, but I already believe it. I don't go around punching people at random. I already believe that. But when you really unpack this statement, you realize how radical it is. Because if you really take it uh, literally, it really means no state at all. Now, not all libertarians take it to that uh, degree, but basically almost any state you can think of operates on a principle of that, well, we can initiate aggression, but you can't. And then we get back to the problem um, that uh, Robert raised, which is the people who are endowed with the right to initiate aggression tend not to be the best people in our society. So it's, it's, it's a difficult problem. So yeah, so, so then the question is, why if, if we're so great, why haven't we been more successful uh, politically? Well, I don't really want to, if I can avoid it, talk about uh, the internal problems in the Libertarian Party. Um, I, I think there is an issue in the U.S. with the two parties are just so dominant, it's hard for people to break out of that. But think about what the Libertarian message really is. It's that every entrenched elite needs to be removed. And, and, that, and that every industry, every group, every whatever that is getting special privileges is going to have them taken away. Now, you can make a great populist message out of that. and th I mean, that is a fantastic populist message. But, whoa, uh, there's no elite. that The elites will wage unrelenting war on that message. They are never going to let that get any traction. So what they would prefer is something like the Republican Party, where some of the members will occasionally talk like this, but with a little bit of a wink. And the people in, you know, in Switzerland all know uh, they don't really mean any of that. I do think there are some people in the Liber in the uh, Republican Party these days who do mean it. I actually think there are some sincere people uh, increasingly. And of course, you can tell they're the sincere people because they are the ones who are demonized and have their names dragged through the mud and ridiculed and laughed at. And I guess the thing that really bothers me is to see how many or I understand why the elites would be against a message like this. I, I, I get it. Of course, of course they would. But to go on Twitter and see regular Americans using the elites hashtags, seeing regular Americans signing on for what are obviously elite projects. I mean, the whole climate change thing, that is an elite project only. And to see regular people signing on for that, when this is just designed to make them miserable, it, it really has been... Uh, discouraging for me to see that. And and that's why for me, COVID was such a, a a disorienting moment for me, because I still had this idea that deep down there burns within the human soul, this desire for liberty. And to see so many people not even be curious about whether any of these restrictions were doing any good, not even being curious about it, 
just saying, well, that guy in that white lab coat says I should do it. So I better do it. not even, you know, I guess I better ruin my life and, and have all my savings dwindle away and have my family not get the surgery they need because some people told me, oh man, that was a wake up call for me. You know, so I, here I am on the verge of 50. I still have things to learn. I don't have all the answers after all. Well, it was really a return to the early 20th century, a combination of progressive corporatism or corporate progressivism, however people want to label it, because it was the eugenics agenda back when the white lab coats could dictate to us. They are actually bringing back eugenics decisions, the Jacobson decision that was used to justify forced vaccinations. Those just really a small fine if you didn't get one, but was used. It was the sole decision in Buck v. Bell, the sole decision that said we can go around and tell poor people who can have kids and who can't. Uh, and the Supreme Court was arrogant about it. People forget, like, at some point, I got to write a book called The Ugly History of the U.S. Supreme Court. Take all their most atrocious, offensive, horrific decisions just to mock them into eternity for yeah. some of those cases. Because people forget some of the justices that get celebrated by both the left and the right today. We're happy to say three generations of imbeciles are, are, is, is enough. Right. I mean, they were arrogant and contemptuous. But to see the fear-minded mentality, particularly in the big tech universe, uh, amplify the uh, everything that the public health apparatus was always about in the COVID context was, it, was extraordinary to witness. I mean, we went through something that's never happened in human history. No, no state has shut down the entire society because of a virus. They didn't right. even shut down during the Black Plague. I mean, and yet here we were in, in, in what was basically an amplified flu for most people uh, running around terrified. There's still people in L.A. They're, 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 they'll be driving by themselves in their car with the windows down, still triple masked. It's yeah. like, well, what's it, it's what insanity. It's insanity. Yeah. 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 By the way, let me just say in parentheses uh, just quickly about something you said about the Supreme Court and um, the, the ugly history of the Supreme Court. Back when I was more white pill minded. I actually, uh, years ago, thought about kind of the opposite book. I'd like to see a book of the dissenting opinions in some of the really bad cases and see what a, you know how we could have argued to a good result in those cases. Because I bet there's a lot of great jurisprudence buried in some of those decisions. Oh, yeah, no, no doubt there is. I mean, the... Uh... Uh, in particular, I mean, I think there was one dissent in Buck v. Bell, as an example. Uh, I mean, so there was some wise, sage, that's where you got some of the better logic, some of the better wisdom, some of the better arguments. Um, but, like, I wasn't totally shocked by the react. As soon as I started seeing it built, it reminded me of the past. In other words, it, like, there's a reason why the statist loved COVID. Like, the Cuban government is, is going undergoing its current economic problems, not because of the sanctions. I'm not a fan of the sanctions. And the sanctions don't help them, but they're in trouble because they wanted to prove to the world how wonderful their government is because they could prevent COVID from ever coming to Cuba by canceling tourism that that crushed thir a third of their economy. And they still don't yeah. know how to manage sugar. They, they can't produce sugar right. like they did in the 60s. But well, yeah, no, I, I hear. Well, look, Jane Fonda said that COVID is God's gift to the left. I mean, she just flat out said it. But by the way, you can tell I have daughters. I'm, I'm using an ice cream cone pen. Is this the only one I've got around? <laughs> By the way, I, I haven't forgotten about that, Tom. Five daughters, and not that not you need a boy in there, but five daughters, and you're still married, I presume. So there's six women. Do you have a pet in the house? Uh, well, uh, a cat. We've got a cat. Uh, oh my god, that makes more. Oh, but <laughs> the cat's female, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> That's two. That counts for two. Then you're up to eight. Okay, but honest <laughs> to goodness, really. Um, you know, every time I used to give speeches where I would start off, especially when they were younger, because now the oldest one is eighteen. 
But when they were young, like we had three under three at the beginning. And I would give speeches and I would say, by the way, I have these children. And I would get these gasps from the audience. They couldn't believe that I was doing this. But uh, honestly, I can't imagine, you know, not having any one of them. Like each, and the thing is, I'm an only child, as I said at the beginning. So I kind of thought, you put the same inputs into each child, they come out the same. You know, like, I, I, what do I know? <laughs> and they're all so different. And I, I just love each particular difference in each particular one. But, but anyway, um, but I'll, if I can jump back into the COVID thing really, really quickly, I did a couple of things because I've been writing an, I, I've been writing a newsletter for many years. But for the past couple of years, my newsletter kind of turned into like the COVID daily report because that's what everybody I was writing to wanted to hear. And occasionally I would stray from that. Like I'd write a little bit about George Floyd or something and they'd say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Get back to the, get back to what we, what we signed up for. So I did a couple of things because this was driving me crazy. I thought, am I the only one who notices that none of this is doing any good? So I did two things. So I'd like to, if I may, give out two websites. So one of them is called chartstheyforgot.com. And at chartstheyforgot.com is my free ebook called COVID Charts CNN Forgot. And in that, I, I would put things mm -hmm. like, okay, here is, um, here's a graph of the Midwest in 2020. And remember, we were told that at Thanksgiving, there's going to be a major spike. Okay, I have taken the dates off the chart. Show me where Thanksgiving is. Of course, you can't because it's all random. So then, then I, I've got a chart in there. Um, Iowa dropped all of its state level restrictions in February. We're in June now. This was 2021. Um, here's a graph of, of the outcomes for all the, the Midwestern states. I'm sure Iowa must be way, way the outlier. So it'll be really easy. Go ahead, pick out Iowa. You can't. So, and I just do this over and over in that, in that uh, ebook. Well, then the second thing I want to say is then I made this into an interactive kind of game. I made it into a quiz you're bound to fail. So I came up with a website called covidchartsquiz.com. So it's covidcharts with an S quiz.com. And in this, this is a quiz you're designed to fail. So it'll have two lines and it'll say, okay, one of these places locked down really hard, did the following, whatever. The second one didn't. Pick out which is which. Or here, here are graphs of European countries and they're either their death or hospitalization numbers. Here are all these different ones. They've all had mask mandates. On each one, pick out, show me where the mask mandate went into effect. It must be obvious, right? I bet the numbers fell immediately after that. Then go ahead, pick out, show me. And of course, oh, the results are completely random. You cannot, you cannot bring this up and not expect me to do it in real time. Hold on. How long <laughs> does it take the quiz? Take the quiz. Do, do we do this or do, do you don't want me to do this? You can, it, it'll take a while is the problem. There are so Got many it. questions in it. Well, let's just see what it looks like. Um, Which one state has a, quote, really good governor, according to Dr. Fauci? <laughs> and which one doesn't? Okay, now hold on. May I ask you a question? Is the red and the blue intended to deceive here? If I were going to do this, I would have it's used red. Like yeah, it's not meant to be red state governor or anything like that. Um, which one has a good governor? I'm going to go reverse psychology. Do yeah, I get reverse psychology has a good governor. And then do I have a, do I get the answer right away? Or do I have to get like to the IQ test? And do I have to give my email address to get the results? No, you on? don't. No, you yeah. don't. There is no opt-in required, but if you want my free ebook, you can click the bottom and get it. So okay. yeah. I'm not, we're not going to go through it. All that I know is how many of those IQ tests I've taken where I do the test. And then I have to give my credit card at the end to get my results. Right. I must be dumb. That's the, the bottom yeah, no, line. No, for this one, I decided no opt-in necessary, but I do have a little plug for my ebook at the bottom in case people want it. So it's very, very light on requesting people's email addresses. Cool. Uh, I mean, I consider 
the best argument against the state is just see the the state's response, the government's response to COVID around the world. There's no better example of how what an utter abominable failure they are. They made everything worse. They made kid situations worse. They made mental health worse, physical health worse. They, I mean, our mortality rate went up more after the, the so-called vaccines than they did before the so-called vaccines. That's long, yeah. Robert, that's, that's long COVID. Don't challenge the science there. We can't get into trouble here. That's long COVID. Nothing else. <laughs> Sorry. It, it was Sorry. fantastic. The reason I visited Sweden a couple of weeks ago was that my trip was postponed. I had wanted to take it. I think in October of last year, and then Sweden very abruptly said, uh, well, starting on such and such date, um, Americans and a couple other countries, they can't come in anymore. I think Israel, a couple other, but can't come in. And my my trip was scheduled for a week after that happened. And I, I had scheduled the trip because I just, I was so sick of walking around seeing people masked that I just said, I just want to be in a society where there's none of this. So by the time I got there, a lot more places were were like that, but still, it was like almost no trace of it. The only trace of it I really saw was they still, in some places like the Royal Palace and other places, they still have the six feet or the two meters away signs. And and I, you know, I always have I fantasize about going to the grocery store and dressing up like a clerk and and scraping those things off the floor. And if anybody asked me, I'd say, "Oh, we're getting new ones in," you know. And then I would just leave. You know, <laughs> I just won't get all these things up. And then the other thing is because of my my personality. I mean, I'm mostly a live and let live person. I mean, that is kind of the libertarian thing. But, but you know, as a libertarian, you can still criticize people. You know, you, you, just because you don't use violence against them, you can still, the idea is you use reason rather than coercion. And when I see people wearing these suffocation, I call them either suffocation masks or duck masks, I just think what, I, I can't, or, or, or you know what, in a way even worse now, after everything we've heard, like even the COVID people are telling you, except Fauci, the rest of them are saying those stupid cloth masks don't do anything. And we admit that now. And yet you still see people wearing them. I want to say to them, what do you think that's doing? Or or I actually got to a point, some people got upset at me on Twitter. I said, at this point, when I walk past somebody who has a duck beak on, I just quack at them. And I had people say, oh, you know, you should just live and let live. You know, if you're going along with, at least implicitly, this crazy uh, dystopian regime. If the worst thing that happens to you is you get quacked at, then consider yourself lucky. I, I have wanted to stop people just to ask them, but but the, I have two fears. One is probably more um, uh, a prejudgment, I guess. I want to ask them, why are you wearing this outside? I just want to know what's going on in their head, but I'm actually scared because I think that a person who's doing that still now might react very aggressively yes. or different. So I can't do it. But, but let me, I just want to bring one thing up. Just speaking of, it's it's another thing where, had you said it two years ago, I'm just going to read the article. I'm not going to comment on it, commentate. The, the COVID, uh, I, I, I'm going to jump over words, may impair long-term immunity. This is coming from Israeli uh, IsraelNationalNews.com. COVID vaccines. Research suggesting. It's like, who, who, who could have seen this coming two years ago, except the people who saw it coming two years ago, yeah. who were shunned? Uh, you know, kicked off of uh, social media, uh, scrubbed off of Wikipedia. Um, and by the way, well, this kind of comes full circle back to the Mises Institute, because when we had the financial crisis of 2008, oh my goodness, how many people we had saying no one could have seen this coming. Well, at the Mises Institute, my friend Mark Thornton, who had the office right next to me, Mark Thornton had been talking about the the housing collapse for several years and with all the numbers and laying it all out very clearly for people to see. But because we're not part of the elite, 
nobody, you know, nobody cared. And then so, so Paul Krugman, who also didn't see it coming, I mean, didn't, not really, not really. <laughs> um, his thing was, he actually said, way too many people are asking um, how we get into this mess and, and not asking how we get out. But how you get out of a mess is almost always related to how you got into it. So it is important to talk about that. Or James Galbraith said, oh, maybe there were a dozen people who just stumbled upon predicting this years ago. And of course, none of those dozen are our people. And and so, yeah, actually, if you listen to the people, I mean, it's almost a rule of thumb now. If you really want to understand what's going on, I mean, it's true. There are some quacks out there who are going to give you bad health advice, bad economic advice. That's true. But if you want to get pretty reliable information on almost anything now, health, uh, the economy, whatever it is, you have to look somewhere other than the uh, the mainstream. And the Mises Institute just has an excellent track record on this. And they're not perma bears. They're not, they're not people who say, who constantly say there's going to be a recession and then inevitably they wind up being right eventually. That's not who they are. Well, yeah, it's been fat. Two things have been fascinating. One about like everything happening with COVID and the rest that on the economic side, the criticism from the George Gammons of the world, the people that are uh, follow the Austrian school that are of that mind, realpolitik mindset was you can't just print all of this and expect there to be no consequences. You can't right. double the money supply in the real economy and think, eh, no inflation's going to come about. Or if it does, it's transitory. And and now I get we're trying to pretend it's you know Putin's price hike and all that jazz. It's like, well, first of all, Putin didn't jack up any prices. <laughs> I mean, we were the ones right. that issued sanctions. So right. you know that doesn't even apply on its own terms. But we're seeing in live time, the critics uh, have are increasingly seeing what their theories are right. And now we're in an economic world, which is kind of a peculiar economic world, where the Fed can't really use its tools to try to solve the problem because the more they raise interest rates, the stock market and housing markets might collapse. And then, yeah, maybe you get inflation under control because nobody has any money. So that's not exactly a solution necessarily. But we're seeing, and then we're seeing in the same way in the global sense. Putin's position back in 1997, based on Uni University of Pittsburgh libertarian-oriented individuals, was that what matters more about power, geopolitical power, is controlling necessities, food, fuel, military power to a certain degree, people, nuclear weapons, etc. Controlling financial power, currency power, a lot of that's fictional. A lot of that is, or it's fictitious. It can disappear overnight. It can vanish quickly. It's built on a lot of uh, illusions. And we're seeing in lifetime that the sort of the whole globalist crowd was we can take out Putin because we run. Uh, we can take out Russia, though their target really was Putin, particularly not because they're smart, but because that's where they're at. But uh, because we control the global financial institutions, we control the global cultural institutions, we control the global political institutions. We run the IMF and the World Bank. We control the financial and banking and currency systems. The dollar is dominant. Uh, we control the cultural institutions. And surely the Russians don't want to be without Netflix for a few weeks. Um, they've discovered just the opposite. Uh, not only are the Russians happy not to have Disney anymore, but uh, the ruble is doing better than it's done in about half a decade. Uh, and the everybody's desperate now for the food and fuel that is now being limited arbitrarily and artificially by European and Western response. What's your thoughts on all that? Well, first of all, the I, I cannot get over how they get away with blaming everything on Russia, whatever it is. It's not just inflation. It's um, 
you know, maybe there was some problem with the Texas power grid and they thought maybe Russia had done that. Do you realize how stupid you sound when you say that? I mean, I mean, even in the, the worst moments of the Cold War, people weren't that obsessed with the Soviet Union that they would attribute everything going on to them. And secondly, it reminds me that the U.S. regime will never say, like the, the president will never say, look, you know, we, we made a mistake here and we're going to try to fix it. He's never made a mistake, Joe Biden. As far as I can see, he's never made a mistake. The inflation's not his fault. The baby formula thing's not his fault. Nothing's his fault. Nothing is his fault. Uh, they, they can, and, and, but yet we all know it is. We all know that now inflation, okay, well, that's the Federal Reserve, but you know, he, he, you can appoint a better chair of the Federal Reserve. And, and, and obviously under Trump, we had a lot of you know, uh, inflation of the money supply. I, I totally get that. But the point is, we know these people have done terrible things to us, whether it's the economy the, and specifically the housing market um, all those years ago or the war in Iraq or whatever it is we know. And there are no consequences. They face no consequences. They're, they're not driven out of, of society. They're not driven out of public life. They face no consequences. A private sector firm that did this to us, we would never hear from them again unless they were favored by the state, which a lot of them are but we'd never hear from them again. And yet everybody's terrified of the private sector and they want to go cheer and wave little flags for the public sector. And so, yeah, I'm not anti quote American, but I am anti the American elite. I'm, I'm very much anti the, the regime. And, and I'm, I'm happy to make that distinction. You, you know, it's amazing. You said it now, and now I just put two and two together. The reflexive it's delusional blaming of Putin. It's yeah. the Putin uh, gas hike. By the way, in the states, uh, let me just get this chat off. In the states, the the price hike, the, the the gas increase is Putin's fault. In Canada, if you ask uh, our elite here, it's uh, inflation, it's big tech, big oil making big profits. The reflexive blame everything on Russia. It's mutatis mutandis. Blame everything on COVID. Someone's sick. COVID. Someone has a stomachache? COVID. Someone's forgetting stuff? COVID. It's not the lockdowns that's causing mental issues about people forgetting what day it is and short-term memory. COVID. Everything, it was reflexive. It was spiritual. It was almost, I want to say religious, but not to demean religion. It was just superstitious. It's COVID. Everything bad that happens, and now it's it's everything bad that happens is Putin. It's, it's, a, it's a tactic employed by the state. But the question is this, how do you fight the tactic when you, hold on, I, I just wrote this down earlier. You said <laughs> you thought the libertarian philosophy of individuals to be free would dominate. I think people have a greater desire to be dominated. They have a greater desire to be given rules to abide by, and they don't want freedom because freedom is scary. Knowing what you have to do at 10 o'clock in the morning is liberating in the sense that it removes your liberty from you. I have a friend named Jeff Lescobar who has developed a theory about this. because he, he, he wants to know, for instance, why is it that somebody who thinks a certain way about, um, you know, the, the minimum wage or antitrust law or something like that also thinks the same, you know, has, has also will share the same opinion of abortion. Like they, they have nothing to do with each other. Now it's not true that this is, it's not true in absolutely every case, but it's true in a lot of cases. And why would that be? And so there have been various attempts to answer this question. Thomas Sowell has a, a great book, um, where he, it's not knowledge and decisions, it's um, uh, a conflict of visions. And he tries to account for this. But Lescobar says there's a much simpler explanation. It's that a lot of people, for whatever reason, have to be in the in crowd. 
Like when they were in high school, they would die a thousand deaths before helping out that unpopular kid who's getting made fun of. Now today on Facebook, oh, they're all sad about this unpopular kid. You know, now that they're moms and dads, they're sad about the unpopular kid. Um, and or 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 we we believe in education, but the reality is when when they were in school, they were making fun of that unpopular kid. And the reality is today, yeah, they oh they believe in education, but today if they read anything, they read some trashy novel on the beach. So I don't believe a word these people say. But the point is, these people there are a lot of them who just they want to be in the in group, and the elites favor certain policies because they bring them more power. This group wants to be in with the elites because the elites are the in group. They are the entertainers. They are the politicians. They're the heads of business. They're the, the heads of culture. They want, they don't want to be dissidents. They don't want to be the, the unpopular kid. They need, they, they need the approval. So they'll repeat whatever they're told to repeat. And it's not like they consciously sit down and say, I must be in the influential group. So I will therefore, it's an instinct thing. And so this helps to account. It's simply they don't want to be in the out group. And the elites are playing on that very, very effectively. Yeah, that uh, I, I, it's a very good explanation. I think the other aspect of it is I always say totalitarianism begets more totalitarianism and a freedom culture begets more freedom in the sense that like you look at cultures and societies that have a history of strong independence. A lot of them are mountain cultures. This goes back to Scotland, East Tennessee, Switzerland. You know, how do the Swiss keep fighting off everybody? They're a bunch of little mountain cultures. And, it, and it, what is a freedom culture begets more, more self-reliance, more independence, more uh, self-enlightenment is more self-empowerment and leads to the desire for more and more freedom. In the same sense, if you were, I was always going to say like a version of Roger Fogum's book, Everything I Needed to Learn, I Learned in Kindergarten. And I was like, that's true. My parents dropped me off at a random authority figure who told me if I didn't do whatever they told me to do, first, they were going to deprive me of pleasure. No recess for you, no fruit punch for you, no cookies for you. And then they'll escalate to punishment, social isolation, staying in the corner, social shaming. Back when I went to school, actual physical punishment. I mean, I, I got spanked once, be, got spanked for the first time for trying not to eat my peas. And I got spanked again because I didn't know how to tie my shoe. And all my response was, was to hate authority. That was my response. Like, I'm not for this. I don't Why, why should you be running my life? You're just some random schmuck the, uh, who has to use power to do this. So I think it explains a lot of it. But I think if you grow up in a culture, a family, a society that embraces freedom, and it's one of the great ways to resist totalitarianism is what people do in their individual lives. Homeschooling is an example or education outside of the state. People are really starting to discover and uncover the dangerousness of state monopolized education what that looks like. It looks like, you know, your six-year-old comes home and says maybe they're a girl because their teacher told them about their experiences changing genders. Uh, and it's like, whoa, you know, and a lot of middle America parents are starting to wake up uh, as they right. realize how nuts this is all got. How nuts it is. Right, right, right. Um, I just saw one of the comments uh, and that's, and it's exactly what Jeff says that, that we may be hardwired some people in this way from tribal existence, that if you were expelled from the tribe, then that could mean that could be a death sentence, dude. I so would, therefore, you want to conform. I would, I would have thrived expelled from the tribe. I would actually be able to move faster alone than in a group. The, the, <laughs> the old, so. is an old, it's an African proverb. Uh, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go in a group. I think I'd go faster and further nine out of ten times on my own. <laughs> now, now, by the way, um, just following up on on Robert's thing about uh, people are waking up because they're seeing how radical some of this stuff is. If the Republican Party knew what it was doing and actually wanted to win 
as opposed to being terrified of, of the elites, they would force the Democrats to run on these radical propositions because that puts the Democrats in a no-win situation because they don't want to run on these, I mean, except the true believers. And if they're forced to, uh, to, if they're forced to run on it, then they lose. But if they run away from it, then they anger the hardcore progressives of the party. It is a no-win. Why not put your opponent in a no-win? Now, speaking of uh, eclectic personalities, how did you meet uh, Michael Maltz? Because I know, and, and I know you guys do like do the shows, which is cool, which is the little cartoon shows, which I like. But uh, how did you meet him in the the first place? I met him around 2014 because somebody I had never heard of him before. Somebody invited or suggested that he should come on my show to talk about North Korea, where he's an expert. I had never heard of it before, and I couldn't believe that his name was actually Michael Malice. And I actually said, now, let me just make sure I got the – like, this is not like an Italian last name. It's not like pronounced Molice or something, right? He said, no, it's Michael Malice. So anyway, we had a great episode, and then after it was over, we went off the air and just kept talking, kept talking, kept talking. And I said, you know, next time I'm in New York, we, you know, we ought to have lunch. So next time I was in New York, we had lunch. And we just, it was like a motor mouth the whole time. Just talk, 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 talk. And then before you know it, I, I, I would go up to New York quite a bit in those days. And I, so I would visit him. And we just realized we, ha- I wouldn't say we had compatible personalities. I mean, we do, they're compatible, but they're not the same. Nobody is like Michael Malice. I mean, honestly, there was a time when I think it was Laura Loomer had gone down to Twitter headquarters and had chained herself there in protest. And all these people gathered to, to chronicle this. And Michael got wind of this and he ran down there to be part of it. And the, the first thing he did when he got there was uh, was to shout out, what do you like best about me? Like they're all asking her questions about Twitter and censorship. And this was what. So, I mean, the thing is, I think the thing that really solidified the relationship was in 2015, he and I, you can find this on YouTube. We did a public debate on Alexander Hamilton, good guy or bad guy. And I took bad guy. Now, now personally, he has a very interesting personal story. But I think his political uh, um, influence was very bad. And I, I think he is the kind of guy who wants the elites running everything. And, and by the way, if I could trust these elites, that'd be one thing. If, if it was you and me, maybe we'd do a good job. I don't know. But not these people. Anyway, so Malice and I did this debate in New York City. It was packed. It was the biggest crowd this debate series had ever had. And it was an Oxford-style debate. So they poll the audience before the debate, where do you stand on the resolution? And then after the debate, they poll the audience again. Where do you send in the resolution? You see how many minds were changed, so you have an objective winner. And I'll tell you, I beat the shit out of him. Can I say that on this show? Yeah, for sure. But what was the question? Was it a question that had a clear black and white, or was it totally ambiguous? It was. It was. um, I don't remember the exact formulation, but it's 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 on the video. So if you type Malice Woods Hamilton, it'll come up. But it was something like you know the legacy. You know, Alexander Hamilton was on net a plus for liberty. It was something like that. And see, he said that he was, and I said that he wasn't. But what was fun about it was leading up to it, we had so much fun trash talking each other on Twitter on who was going to beat whom and that I was going to have to be carried out on a stretcher because he was going to beat me so bad. Or there was a symphony orchestra, like I'm half Armenian, and there was a symphony orchestra that on the day of the remembrance of the Armenian genocide performed some music uh, in, in recollection of the dead. Malice posts this. And says, you know, this should be a reminder of what's going to happen to Armenian woods at this debate. I mean, it's just crazy, right? And we had so much fun. And even though he lost the debate, he didn't even care. And I, and I, I even said to him, I think this was caught on tape afterward. 
I even said to him, you know, I, there would have been no shame in losing this debate to you. It, it was so fun. And so we didn't even care about that. It was, we had had an amazing experience together in front of all these people. We went out for dinner afterward. And so just ever since then, like there have been times, I don't know why I'm saying this, maybe I'm intoxicated from the liquid death, but I've had some pretty dark moments in my life uh, since then that are happily resolved. But there's been no one on earth I have more wanted to talk to and have helped me than Michael Malice, whom I've helped th him through some difficult times. Um, you know, he's he's just a good friend, even though sometimes on Twitter he can be really tough and you wonder about him. But he is a he is an absolute sweetheart in in real life and one of these loyal, super loyal friends. So what, one other one quick thing about Michael on that first day that I met him. He had been on Kennedy's show a lot on Fox Business, and, and he was apparently quite fond of her and respected her very much. And I didn't know that much about her. And I think I made some dismissive comment about her. Now, this was our first time meeting, so it would have been very easy for him to just you know brush that off and you know not to, to interfere with our developing friendship. But he politely but firmly stood up and defended her to me. And I thought, this is a guy I want as a friend, because if he'll do that for her, he'll do it for me, which indeed he has. Yeah, I always describe him as he's a ruthless troll on social media, but only to people more powerful. And he doesn't punch down, he punches up. But he's basically soft-hearted underneath it all. Uh, uh, yeah. A lot of people have the similar stories to you. I mean, he, he, he sees himself uh, as a white pill guy, and it, that he offers the red pill, but the white pill is, a, I think he's writing a book called The White Pill, actually. He is, yeah, yeah I can't yeah. wait to read it. Yeah. Yeah. So the uh, but yeah, fun, fun. and I think uh, he has popularized aspects of ideas of anarchism in ways different. Like some people got confused because they said Malice has probably done as much to popularize uh, anarchism as an idea as Lysander Spooner did in his own time and place. Yeah. And people were like, well, what about all these great intellectuals? That are, I was like, oh, yeah, no question. All those people exist. What I mean is he reaches ordinary, accessible, every, people who aren't yeah. going through academic, historical, right. intellectual texts. Right, because, I mean, let, let's be honest. Even though uh, a lot of libertarians know who Lysander Spooner is, most people don't. Most people don't read him. Most people never will read him. But Malice put together a, a, a collection of, of these writings that a lot of people will read, and he goes on shows with big audiences, and he talks about them. Now, maybe if Spooner had had shaved and gotten his act together and been and lived in the you know 21st century maybe he would have done likewise but he didn't instead we have michael malice exactly i i, I remember one of the, the first introduction to michael malice was it was a a tweet he put out on 9 11 and it was i was like holy crap this is this is a notch over the, the limit like i felt i felt dirty even reading it i didn't retweet it or anything he he is a troll i do remember uh, I don't remember where I saw the interview, but he was talking about the death of his parents and people were treating him the way they thought, you know, he would want to be treated like a trollish thing and making jokes. And I, it was an interesting anecdote where he said that was not what I needed the day of, but that's the nature of the beast when you live that, that life. But Tom, I mean, you look like if I, if I'm judging you based on the hour and 45 minutes, we've known each other, the polar opposite of Vallis. Like you, you don't strike me as being edgy, uh, pushing the envelope. Um, I mean, I guess, how does that work as a relationship, both publicly and privately? More publicly than privately. Publicly, how does that work? Okay, well, let me just say in parentheses before I forget um, that when I was on the Babylon Bees podcast, they said, all right, before we get started, we have some listener-supplied questions we'd like to ask you. And they were all about Michael Malice. And then I realized he fed them those questions. That jerk. <laughs> he knew I was going to be on. <laughs> I mean, how, who thinks of things like this? You know, who does things like this? But, well, okay, well, here's an example. Here's a perfect example. 
Michael is much more adventurous than I am in a culinary sense. You know, he, he'll try all kinds of exotic food. I'm just the opposite. It's not like I'm against it, but if I'm hungry, I don't want to order something I might not like because then what am I going to do? I'm starving. So there was one time when we were going to go out to eat and I texted him in, in New York. I said, I said, it doesn't matter where we eat as long as I can recognize everything on the menu. And then he posted that on Twitter. And he said, what? He said, that, he said, that's Tom Woods in a nutshell. Because he said to me, what does it matter if you have to, you have to recognize it? You don't have to order everything on the menu. Why do you? So anyway, so we ended up going to some diner. Like he deliberately made it as vanilla as he could possibly make it in response to that. But yeah, the thing is, every once in a while, I will put out a tweet that's kind of in the malice style just to shock my, my uh, readers. They'll say, oh, my gosh, whoa, Woods is real. I really like spicy Woods. That's, I get that response a lot. I love spicy Woods, they'll say. And I basically got that entirely from Malice, from watching Malice. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I guess it's, um, in a way, it's been good for me. I don't know if, if I've had some kind of influence on him. But let's just say Malice has taken me out of my comfort zone in, in some parts of my life. Or, you know, we'll do bizarre things that I wouldn't think. Like, I wouldn't have gone to the Museum of Modern Art or I, I wouldn't have thought to go to um, whatever that 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 living Shakespeare thing is that I, I can't remember um, uh, what it's called in New York City. But we do we do all these oddball things that because he's Michael Malice and he wants me to break out of my squareness. And so I've broken out of my squareness quite a bit. So I don't know. It's it's fun. And also, I don't know, I, I guess um, we each want in, in the. We're friends in the classic Aristotelian sense of wanting what's good for the other one. We each want what's best for the other one. And I think, and he's encouraged me, he gives me good advice, but also he thinks what's good for me is not to be always the stuffed shirt that I've been through most of my life. And so that's good. That's fun for me. Uh, Tom, tell me about Murray Rothbard's Anatomy of the State. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, Anatomy of the State has since been released as a little kind of eeny weeny book, but it was initially an essay uh, uh, in a larger book. But you can read, you can find, you can just Google Anatomy of the State, read it online. But this is one of these essays that some people say, in fact, I think it's in Malice's collection, the Anarchist Handbook. It's one of these essays that a lot of people say when they read it, it completely changed. They could never look at the world the same way again. Because in, in that essay, Rothbard looks at the state and says, we've been taught a lot of things about the state. The state reflects our collective will, you know, or the state um, activates the multiplier effect or, or the state brings about the common good or the state is just us, right? We are the state, you know? And then he runs through and says, all right, look, every one of these is a fairy tale fantasy and here's why. And then he says, here's what the state really is. You know, like the brute fact of the matter is that for all the fancy language that's used, that's draped around it, the fact of the matter is some people rule and other people are ruled. Okay, now the state wants you to believe that we are the government. And, you know, the state loves it when on Twitter people will criticize like a U.S. senator and say, hey, you're supposed to be working for us. Oh my gosh. I mean, I know these people mean well, right? And I used to be in that position, but there is nothing about this relationship that we have with, with members of the state apparatus in which they are working for us, right? Their salaries are funded by confiscated funds taken from us involuntarily. That is not normally how the employer-employee relationship works. None of this right, approximates that. But they want us to believe these fantasy stories because we're more likely to be pliable 
if we believe these stories about the state. But in that essay, Anatomy of the State, he tells the brutal truth. And so I don't want to spoil it for you. Go look at it. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm pulling it up right now. I'm going to bring up a few super chats. I don't know if these questions are mean or not. I, I don't know inside jokes anymore on the interwebs. Ask Tom about his being a founding member of the League of the South, which is an overtly oh, okay. white nationalist. Or yeah. So, sorry, this one I could have determined was intended to be mean, but I got to bring, I, I want to no, ask the question. No, it's fun. No, it's a lot of fun. No, the, the story there, which I've told, I, I have a, I actually have a page on my website where I respond to what, you know, my haters say. If you don't have haters, you haven't accomplished anything. This, this guy is one of them. That's okay. All right. It means I've done something in my life. Well, back in 1994, when I was still in college, I went to this meeting of people that said, we're going to try to form an organization that's really going to get decentralization on the map. So when I went to this meeting, nobody said, we're going to start a Southern organization. I probably wouldn't have gone because I wasn't a Southerner. I, I, as you know, I was born in Massachusetts, lived there, and then New York City for a long time. But I do favor decentralization. So I went, my friend Jeffrey Tucker said we should go. And at that meeting was Forrest McDonald, who's a guy who you should Google. Forrest McDonald actually won the Jefferson uh, lecturer um, designation from the National Endowment for the Humanities, which is the highest scholarly honor the U.S. government confers. So he was there, and uh, so so obviously this is not a group of people with white, you know, wearing uh, Klan outfits, right? I mean, Forrest McDonald. I mean, come on. And so at that group, it was decided. Well, let's take a vote. Should we have an organization that emphasizes decentralization everywhere in the country? Or should we make it a specifically Southern organization and be more, more um, you know, precise about it? So I voted for the whole country because I wanted to do it in Massachusetts, but I lost. But I thought, well, okay, well, big deal. I'll, I'll, um, you know, I'll still be part of it. It was not a white nationalist organization. Even the Southern Poverty Law Center, which does not concede anything, concedes this. What happened was years and years later, the guy running it went a little loco. And he said, I, and he says this in so many words, I decided to change the organization because we need to focus on X, Y, and Z. And so everybody left. All the PhDs who were in that room when we founded this nerdy organization in 1994 all left. And that's the end of the story. But I'm not, see, the thing is, what you're supposed to do in this situation is beat your breast and say, I'm sorry, I joined an organization that is not part of the three by five card of allowable opinion. Oh, will you, all, Hillary Clinton, will you please forgive me? Mitt Romney, will you please take me back? I absolutely am effing refuse to do that because I didn't do anything wrong. There's nothing wrong with that organization. I would join that the original version of the organization again today because they were anti-war, anti-empire, and pro-decentralization, which is what all decent people should be. And yeah, it's unfashionable, but get some stones and be willing to be unfashionable once in a while, even if it gives me grief. I could save myself so much grief if I would just say, I'm so sorry. I'm not sorry. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to reiterate that I am not sorry. To what do you attribute? Uh, it's a common question I ask pretty much uh, every all of the guests is uh, your independence of thought. Like, I'm always curious whether people have even reflected on it or what, you know, is what leads someone to be willing to be dissident, to say, eh, I understand that's, you know, because there's the easy path. The easy path is to do what's said, to go with the mainstream, to go with the establishment, not only for to be in the popular clique 
in high school, the equivalent thereof in the modern academic, scholastic, entrepreneurial, business, financial world, whatever it may be. Uh, but just massive natural sense that a lot of people want to conform, whereas some people are willing to be independent of thought, even if it comes at the expense of popularity within certain circles of, of society. No one's ever asked me this. Maybe it's a combination of my dad when we would um, do the dishes together sometimes because my mother worked at night sometimes at the restaurant. And so um, he would talk to me about like he was he was a cold warrior to the very end in the 1980s. And he would talk to me about the way people would make excuses for communist crimes or whatever. And I would sit there appalled drying the dishes like what? Tell me more. Right. So so at that point, I realized, OK, some you know, it's, there are some people who just can't be trusted. I mean, if, if you couldn't get communism right, you know, there are some people who can't be trusted. But it, it's not a majority of Americans who did that. So that that alone wasn't enough. But 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 he alerted me to the fact that there were some people who should have known better but didn't on issues like that. Uh, and also, you know, he he was willing to be unpopular personally, um, but he he couldn't keep his political views to himself. That was just his way. And so I kind of respected that um, in a way um, that that he could have had an easier time, let's say, socially, if he would shut his mouth. And socially, sometimes you should shut your mouth, you know. But the fact that he believed in something and stuck to it, even if a whole bunch of people didn't, I think that rubbed off on me. And then secondly, um, here's a newsflash for you. When you're the nerd, uh, sometimes the other kids don't make your life that pleasant, particularly in, in middle school. In high school, things got better. But in middle school, they made my life miserable. It was awful. And so I began to have a kind of, um, I think I may have developed subconsciously the idea that I just don't care what most people think because most people are just asses. <laughs> like most people are treating me miserably. I guess I don't really value their opinion on things. So I, I, I became more willing to trust myself because I was the one I could rely on in those days. There was nobody else I could rely on. So it, it could, could have rubbed off uh, from me there. But then once you start going down that rabbit hole and you start putting pieces together, you realize I'm right. I am right about this. And, you know, come what may, let the world come at me. Um, I'm not changing. Uh, Tom, I think that might be the wet, best way to end this, except for this. Thank you, Viva, for going the extra mile for all of us. No, I thought, I thought, there were, uh, that's not the one I will. I will. Thank you very much. But Tom, people are saying the more you talk, the more they love you. For those who never knew you before, Thank where you. can people find you? Uh, I'm going to put all the pinned links in the pinned comment. Where can people find you? I know you have a number of resources. Uh, so uh, let us have them. Well, I would say, I mean, the, the principle of marketing, key principle is give only one link, but that's so hard to do in this case. So my, my, my website, which need the, the, the homepage is going to be redesigned because there's it greets you with a video where I look like I'm 12. So I, I know that needs to be updated. Um, but uh, but the whole, the rest of the site is updated. Uh, so TomWoods.com has everything that I do. Uh, and also if Tom'sPodcast.com redirects to a list of all 2,131 episodes of the Tom Woods Show, including my episode with our dear friend here, Mr. Robert Barnes. Um, so, so Tom's podcast.com will get you to the, to the links. And then you can, you can subscribe to the podcast using the links there. Um, fantastic. Tom, Robert, stick around. We'll say our proper goodbyes. Everyone in the chat. Thank you very much. Some super chats I couldn't get to, but you know, we appreciate it. And thank you for the feedback. Um, this was phenomenal. We'll do it. I, let's do it again. Cause I, I still feel like there's another good two hours of discussion to be had, but it was great. I loved it. Thank you guys. Mm -hmm.